in order to teach effective sex education, you need to teach those communication and relational skills. Without them, you don't have the skills to employ whatever knowledge you do have. All of those factors are, are really necessary in having a healthy sexuality. Sex ed is more than putting a condom on a wooden penis, which is Julia's experience of sex ed growing up. Julia Feldman is a teacher and sex educator and also the creator behind the Instagram account, Giving the Talk. And we are talking about the shortcomings of modern day sex education and also what it takes to reframe our understanding of what sexuality is, how to broaden the definition of sex, which is cool because it makes it more interesting when there are more things that you can do that qualify as sex. And when you can look at your sexuality in a more complex, deeper, broader way, it's much less limiting and it's a lot more open. So today is part one of that conversation where Julie and I find our footing. And in the first part of this conversation, we explore really strange concepts like how to get people to stop apologizing, why giving unsolicited advice can really shut some people down, including myself. And also we go into the importance of developing a sex ed curriculum to meet the students where they're at, not where you think they're at. And by students, I mean people. Part two, we're going to go into more about understanding your relationship to your own body, how to reframe sex in a much broader sense, and how to develop a deeper, broader understanding of what sexuality is. Uh, just a bit of a warning, there is some audio dropouts in Julia's end of the conversation, but only for the first 10 or 15 minutes. It's a little distracting, but I wanted to let you know. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. I'm good. Are you good? Yeah, yeah, let's go. Okay. So, uh, Julia, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Julia Feldman, and I am a sexual health educator and consultant. And I um, manage the Instagram account Giving the Talk, where I talk about sexuality and relationships in ways that I think we all deserve, talking about conversations we don't normally have, but information that we should have access to. I love the, just the name giving the talk, by the way. I think it's phenomenal. Thanks. I've actually gotten a lot of flack for it because the reality is that there's so many talks we need to have. It's kind of a misnomer. <laughs> it gives people the wrong idea. There's not just one talk, but... I mean, the, the, the understanding is that like giving the, the talk is like, you know, the birds and the bees kind of talk, which I guess, you know, historically has been just one talk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Usually it's one talk where you scare people. <laughs> I, I don't even remember having the talk with my parents. Oh, I did. I had the talk with my dad when I was in high school, which was a little late for me. And the talk basically consisted of him saying, 
you learned all the stuff that you need to know about that stuff in school, right? And what do you say to that? You know, <laughs> you don't say like, oh, no, please enlighten me. So I think I said something like, yeah, yeah, I learned it all. And uh, that was the end of it. This was in high school. Yeah, I was about to graduate from high school. It was far too late. <laughs> there is apparently some countries that do sex ed really early on. Like they start it in like four, five, six years old. Oh, yeah. In, um, in some Northern European countries, they start in preschool. And I work with preschools and kindergartens. So I believe very much in the power of starting early. You're giving the talks. Yeah, yeah. I give talks in preschools. Maybe it should just be called giving the talks. Just put an S at the end and then then it's sol- your problem is solved. Maybe. I don't know why it didn't occur to me before. But I've got this great logo now, so I'm thinking I'm just going to stick with talk for a while. <laughs> Wait, has that never, that has, of course, it's occurred to you. Yeah, I just don't like the way it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I also don't mean to like mansplain and or solve a problem that isn't a problem. Like, No, you know, I appreciate crowdsourcing um, <laughs> input. I'm, you know, no, no judgment in brainstorming. <laughs> it, it was, it was also like facetious advice giving because um, I'm very, very sensitive to unsolicited advice. Interesting. I, yeah. Why is that interesting? That's a dynamic that I think a lot of people wouldn't be aware of. It's great that you know that about yourself. Oh, you think, you think people are sensitive about receiving unsolicited advice, but they're not aware of their sensitivity? I think a lot of people are. I think we live in a culture where um, when someone has an issue, we are taught to try to solve the problem. And I think a lot of times that manifests in unsolicited advice. And I think that, you know, maybe it's why the dynamic of mansplaining has come up so much because um, because people are realizing that they don't actually want unsolicited advice. But I still think that people struggle with figuring out how to support people without giving them that. And, um, and in the absence of giving them that, it feels like you're not supporting people. And I think a lot of people are, are not receptive to the input and um, and might just get annoyed and not realize it's just because someone's giving you unsolicited advice. Oh, I, you know, I'd never even considered that some people view giving unsolicited advice as a form of support and that they don't know how to do otherwise. Interesting. Yeah, I, I actually just thought that it was like a stream of consciousness sort of like drunken toddler type of approach <laughs> to helping me solve my problems. And it wasn't, re- I mean, I sort of, I understand that it's probably them trying to come from a good place of being helpful. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's so not helpful that like I have a hard time seeing it as support. And maybe it's because, you know, I had a lot of criticism growing up or that I'm myself a very critical person. And so I'm, uber aware of how critical I can be. And so I really don't want to be critical. And then I'm also really sensitive to it when it comes from other people towards me. It's a lot. There's a lot of layers there. Yeah, that's a lot of layers, but a lot of layers of self-awareness too. So kudos to you for that. <laughs> the, the way I, I, I try just not to give advice. And if I can't help myself, I'll say, are you, I have a, a suggestion if you're open to hearing it. Well, I'm just, I, I have to pause and ask, you are the person that holds up the sign that says free love advice, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but I am offering, so, like, I am offering advice. And so people come to me wanting advice. And so it is solicited advice. Gotcha. 
you know, people walk by. I don't just like have people walk by me and then I yell advice. <laughs> I would them. hope not. I think that would ponder <laughs> the category of harassment and not advice. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, yes, I am the free love advice guy. I'm also just because I I enjoy giving advice doesn't mean that I want to receive it from anybody, especially if I don't know you. Oh, for sure. So, anyways, you you might consider just putting a little S. You know, you could keep your. <laughs> circle here <laughs> you could keep your logo but then you could have like a like a drawn type s at the end you know oh, yeah <laughs> i like that <laughs> all right anyways let's move on to what we're going to talk about today okay. which is that's an excellent question i mean i i talk about sex for a living and i tell people that i talk about sex because i can um because it's a topic that's always un- like left me completely unfazed doesn't rile me i feel grounded and secure talking about it so We'll talk about something related to sex. Yeah. But I think initially we talked about about talking about sex in in the way that I like to teach about it, which is in just having a much broader, more expansive understanding of all the things that relate to sex and sexuality um, and how liberating that can be. Because I feel like I work with people of all ages. I start with people who are, like I said, in preschool and I work with people all the way through their senior years. And when I talk about the circles of sexuality and the different aspects of our lives that relate to our sexuality, it's a really um, exciting concept for people to see that like sex isn't just a penis going in a vagina, that sex is actually really expansive in terms of how we understand our um, emotional and physical relationships with other people, our relationship with our self and, and our sense of sexuality and sensuality in our own bodies. And then just all of the different types of skills and knowledge that can support us in developing a healthy sexuality. And that a lot of that really connects to the stuff that you talk with people about related to love um, and how to kind of cultivate healthy, loving relationships. And so I think we'll probably talk about something in that space. (laughs) Can you tell me? Okay, so yes, I agree. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about communication. Um, You just mentioned something that I'm not really familiar with. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm not a sex educator, so I've kind of like dabbled in sex education, but I don't have any formal training in it. I'm a coach, I'm not a therapist. You're also not a therapist. And a to get, what's that? A teacher. You teach what? You sort of cut out, but I got most oh, of that. Which I'm is sorry. basically you, you. It's not your fault. You started off. It's funny. My girlfriend yesterday. Oh, so earlier today, um, she apologized for something that she didn't need to apologize about. Uh, uh-huh. Which is sort sort of like you know you can't control the internet connection and the dropouts and the bits and stuff, um, but I had a call scheduled with my therapist. Speaking of therapists, while she was on a work call upstairs, and we could hear each other through the floor, <laughs> and so like I had someone had to move, you know, and so she moved, but then I also moved. We both moved basically, and when we went to like check in about it, she was like, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm sorry," and I go, "Well, for what?" Like we, we both had calls scheduled at the same time and, uh, it's not anybody's fault that we can, we just now realize that we can hear each other through the floor. I, I guess the, the reason I'm bringing it up is that like people sometimes apologize for stuff that's not, it's like out of their control. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we're, we're trained to do that. We being. I think people in general, but definitely people that identify as women are taught to, to apologize for things, to make things right, or to try to make things right, to gloss over them. I think that there's often the notion of like, that you need someone to have accountability and that 
oftentimes women are the ones who pick that. I said, I'm sorry, I assumed that it was my computer because my technology has just been failing today. But yes, in general, I find myself apologizing for things that probably shouldn't. That's a habit I've been working on. So it actually might be your fault because you're also in your car and there's maybe like you're farther from the wi- the router. I'm actually really close to my router, far closer than I was when I taught my last lesson an hour ago. So that I... Uh, I strategically placed my car very close to my router. <laughs> oh, nice. Is it like parked inside the house? Yeah, exactly. I'm in my living room. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I guess I'm curious. This is funny. We're just going to just go where this this leads us. But is it helpful yeah. for me as a person to say to somebody who's like apologizing for something they don't really have any control over, even though it sounds like maybe you did because you're having technological <laughs> challenges today is it helpful to like start to break that like the the habit is to say like oh that that, you know you don't have to apologize about stuff that's not that's outside of your control i would prefer if you apologized about stuff that you actually were sorry for um i think it's an interesting conversation to have i think that it's probably i would appreciate in that situation and was like oh think that was actually something that you did that you'd need to apologize for as opposed to saying like don't do that because does that make sense i feel like raising someone's awareness like oh i want to cue you into the fact that i think that wasn't your fault you know um i think that that's of like gentle supportive nudging that people benefit from as opposed to being told like because there's also something kind of disempowering about like don't apologize for that why are you apologizing for things you shouldn't you know because then you like maybe feel bad about trying to do something that you thought would improve a situation (laughs) Well, then you can apologize. So much apologizing. <laughs> Maybe we need to apologize less. <laughs> well, we, yeah, I think we could all use, for the most part, I think we could be apologizing less. Even men uh, over apologize, I think. Fewer, better apologies. People learn, need to learn how to give really good apologies. Yeah, fewer, better. Okay, let's just go there. Can we just do a better, let's just break down a better apology. But before we do that, I want to highlight uh, the fact that we both are sort of high energy people and also that language is very important right there's a there's a big difference between oh you don't need to apologize about that and um i'd like to bring to your awareness that you know that maybe that wasn't as necessary as you thought it was and that's kind of hard it's like really hard to like find the right way to say stuff yeah and I mean, I think that's one of the things that I work a lot around professionally, and I think you do too. I mean, I a lot of my work is around talking to people about consent, and that's one of the topics that really freaks people out. You know, like the idea of establishing boundaries and communicating them. And a lot of us have been taught that consent, especially sexual consent, is so stilted. And you're like, "Can I have sex with you? Do you want to have sex with me?" And really teaching people how to broaden their concept of what consent is and how to ask for it. You know, it can be something as simple as like taking little baby steps. Like, can I hold your hand? Or like, how does this feel? Are you comfortable with this? You know, like it doesn't have to be the big question. Like, can we have sex tonight? You know, but that's not actually how real consent functions. That really, it's an ongoing conversation and trying to learn how to use nuanced language to make you comfortable and your partner at ease so that it's not something that feels stilted or forced or uncomfortable. Um, so those like little subtleties with um, figuring out how to phrase things in a way that in a way that ensures that it'll probably be received better um, is part of like the craft of communication. And that just takes time and skill and practice. Yeah. And you can adjust in a tune over time. You know, I can also check in with my partner about how I talked about me feeling the 
she didn't need to apologize. Yeah. And we can also come up with language that would feel better for her the next time. Totally. And that would be a really great part of an apology, right? Like we were talking about like giving fewer, better apologies. A better apology is definitely one that acknowledges what you did wrong and talks about how you'd correct that behavior in the future. That's a, it's like a really nice, simple framework. Yeah. You know, like I regret doing, so the way I learned it in recovery is, is, you know, you bring up the thing that you did, you say, I regret doing it. I wasn't the best father, son, brother, sister, husband, boyfriend I could have been in that situation. And I'm open to figuring out or to hearing how that impacted you and also how I can make it better moving forward. Yeah. I think that's empowering for everyone involved. No one wants to make the same mistakes, right? No one wants to cause pain or hurt, especially repeatedly. Um, No one? I think most people don't. Yeah. Especially with people that they care about and love. I'm sure there's people that do. But when I teach and when I talk with people, I generally start with the assumption that we're all good people and that we want good, healthy, fulfilling relationships. And that if we don't have them, it's because we don't really have the tools to cultivate them yet. Yeah. And there are some people that are, there are like bad people out there. There are, they're totally bad people out there, but I'd rather not approach the world expecting that that's the norm. And also if they're bad people out there, they're not going to want to remedy their behavior or change them. So that's probably not a good use of my energy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, but when I hear there's like, no one wants to create, to cause harm or like, well, there, oh. there are actually people, but these probably aren't the people we're having these conversations. <laughs> they're probably not going to listen to our conversation today. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're no, they're just certainly not listening to the love drive <laughs> or following. Maybe you, maybe they're that. Maybe that's who all of your followers are. They're those people. <laughs> I, no, they're not. They're they're like lovebirds, and they're you know probably seventy five percent women uh, wanting to be good of, people, right? <laughs> wanting to be good people, wanting to apologize less. Yeah, wanting to speak up for uh, what they want. Probably wanting yeah. to have partners that inquire about how they can support them better in the future. <laughs> yeah. And also to have conversations about sex. Yep. And um, to say no with love. Yep. You know, Which like is, how to bring how yeah. to bring up when uh, there's a behavior that's unwanted or uh, your partner showing up in a way that doesn't feel good to you. And um, the, you know, people that want to craft the kind of language that fosters connection. Yeah. Which is something that we're not necessarily taught to do in our daily lives well i don't yeah i don't think we are i mean i went to school i actually have a degree in communication uh but like a the theory of communication from the uc santa barbara has has or had a communication department yeah Uh, but that that is not a popular i mean it's it was a popular major because it was like really easy um (laughs) But the, the the entry requirements are actually quite stringent. You had to pass like two or three pre-com classes and they were on Fridays at 7 a.m. Oh, wow. And that really, that weeds them out, doesn't it? It weeded out a lot of people. But I was like, all right, Sean, you got this. This is the only fucking thing you got to do. You get into the, you get into com and it's a fucking cakewalk all the way to graduation. Just get your ass to the 8 a.m., 7 a.m. class. So I got my ass to that class and uh, it was me and again, you know, 75 or 85% women. Um, but for the most part, we don't teach communication. Yeah. And we, yeah. we don't teach relationship, like relational tools. Yeah. And uh, we, don't, we don't teach intimacy yeah. and we don't teach sexuality. Exactly. And that actually sexuality education is all of those things, or at least it should be. And that's what I teach. And that's why... 
my approach is kind of different from what a lot of people teach, because I think that in order to teach effective sex education, you need to teach those communication and relational skills. But without them, you don't have the skills to employ whatever knowledge you do have. You know, you might know that you want your partner to use a condom, but unless you know how to connect with your own wants around that and be able to articulate it and communicate it to them in a way that feels safe and comfortable to you and the way to select a partner that you feel like you could communicate that with and feel safe around, like all of those factors are are really necessary in, in having a healthy sexuality. And also getting curious about what is exciting about your partner not wanting to use a condom. Oh yeah. Totally. Right. So like what are what are the stories that that person has told themselves or has been has been told about what it means to wear a condom? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There are so many stories that we aren't really privy to unless we ask. And there's this element of curiosity that I really like in in all relationship conflict and in all like potential frictional uh situations which is like what is the story that you're telling yourself yeah and our stories come from everywhere right like when it comes to our sexuality a lot of our stories come from popular culture and from pornography that we've been exposed to from watching relationship dynamics play out in our life through healthy and unhealthy relationships that we've seen from Mm. our own innate desires um and and it's just fascinating to kind of see where those stories come from and where they lead us um because i think that we're not really taught to think about that. And there's also a lot of shame around it. You know, like a lot of people did develop their understanding about sexuality from pornography or from um, different types of like sexually explicit content that they feel ashamed about watching. But that's where a lot of fantasies come from and a lot of dynamics that people then don't know how to talk about with their partners and figure out how to navigate because there's so much shame around that. If I hadn't developed like a broader understanding of my sexuality, if I had just looked at pornography and and used that as sort of the benchmark, it'd be a very limiting sex life. Yeah. And super disappointing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why I have to reframe sexuality for people in such a broader sense, because I think that if you're left to pornography to kind of define for you what sexuality is, it's very limited and it's very narrow and it actually doesn't create as many opportunities for pleasure and connection and enjoyment and and fun as someone who really opened their mind to understanding sexuality as a really multifaceted complex thing. You're really pigeonholing yourself if you view the bodies and the acts that you see in mainstream pornography as what's on the menu. There's really so much more that can be had. There's also so much more different types of pornography these days. Oh yeah, for sure. So if we did go outside of mainstream, we we could probably get pretty darn close to like a really big wide freaky range of sex stuff. Oh yeah, there's a big freaky range of sex stuff, but I think there's something about pornography that's kind of inherently performative and I think that if that's the lens that you're being exposed to sexuality, especially initially and in, in you're developing sexuality, then there's going to be an element of um, of performance in the back of your mind at all times. And I think that's really unfortunate too, that mm. um, that instead of thinking about sexuality as like an experience or a dynamic or an energy or a way to engage with someone, if you're really cognizant of how you look doing something and how someone's going to see you and you're preoccupied with that kind of presentation, then you're also really going to be limiting your potential for pleasure. Yeah, I think this is a beautiful point is that... M- you know, most pornography is performative because they're 
you know, they're actors and actresses and talent that are being paid to perform certain acts for the the viewer's pleasure, not for the pleasure of the people involved. Exactly. Um, I wrote this post uh, not too long ago saying something like women prefer your presence over your performance. Mm-hmm. And like 98% of people agreed. And of course, there's always uh, people that don't. And that's fine. And there's room for everybody. There's room for someone to be like, no, I actually really enjoy performance (laughs) over presence. And like, that's even presence, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you could push back against that and be like, well, what's your definition of performance? You know? Um, Because it's so new. Well, I did. I did it. You know, I didn't because because there's room for all of that. Yeah. Um, But for the most part, you know, and, and of course, I... I said women prefer, I didn't say people prefer, but you know, I prefer presence over performance. I prefer connection over performance and also letting go of what sex is going to look like or where it's going to take us. Well, I mean, I think that there's also kind of a misunderstanding that, that might arise from that, which is that like the the distinction between presence and performance is kind of like a, a false dichotomy there. You know, like you can enjoy your partner watching you. You can enjoy watching your partner experience pleasure. That doesn't mean they're performing for you. That just means like you're deriving serious enjoyment from someone else's pleasure. That's how sex should be. You know, like that's wonderful. Um, and I think that that notion that like either you are there to connect or you're there to perform kind of isn't true. You know, like there are instances where you know, like you want someone to fetishize a certain part of your body and like worship it. And there's no harm in that, you know, as long as your understanding is that you're doing it for the enjoyment of it and not the act of performing it. Right. Like, I think it's those subtle nuances there. (laughs) It's also really hard to be nuanced on on social media. Oh yeah. Especially Instagram. You you only get a few characters, better use them well. I always get comments from people like, yeah, well, you know, have you considered this, this, and this? Like, yeah, I did. I did consider, I I did consider those. And like, sorry, there's just no room for me to consider all of the things. Usually when people say that to me, I'm like, would you like to see my first version of this post that was four times as long and had everything that I'd love to say about it? But yeah, that is one of the challenges of social media is finding a way to like take these really big, heavy concepts and whittle them down into what you think is kind of as close as you can of a facsimile of what you want to communicate while also just like acknowledging that it's going to be inadequate because it's so small. It's, it's like such a beautiful metaphor for like sex education. Oh, yeah. You get two days. Can you teach everything? <laughs> so so it gets it gets like boiled down to what some people feel is you know whoever the agenda whoever's agenda they're following feels is the most important thing right yeah. like uh, reducing pre- unwanted pregnancies and, uh, and hiv STI, yeah. and hiv, <laughs> and HIV. yeah <laughs> okay yeah. let's let's call it what it is i mean in the state of california until um a couple of years ago it was mandated that you teach hiv education you know like and that was kind of think the assumption was like if you're teaching effective hiv education then hopefully that will just cover all stis and we're good to go and and you can move on with that i i can just imagine like it's like they give you the curriculum and at the bottom it says like yeah updated you know april 1992 yeah exactly <laughs> by the american red cross exactly <laughs> it's called positive prevention i can show you the binder <laughs> Oh, it's a little depressing. Yeah, it really is. And also there's this element of like hopefulness, right? Because we have so far to go. <laughs> totally. I mean, what, So the impact is great. 
when I started um, working for a local school district coordinating their sex ed, I did focus groups with teenagers to ask them what they would um, want to learn if they could select everything for their own sex ed. And one of the questions that came up most often from these teenagers was, why do people have sex? And I just thought it was really fascinating. You know, like we're starting so many yards ahead of like, when you have penetrative sex, this is how you use a condom correctly, as opposed to starting with the, why do people have sex? And there's actually so many reasons why people choose to have sex. And that's a really important thing to break down for someone with a developing sexuality. You know, like, are you having sex with them because you want to be popular? Are you having sex with them because you're horny and you want to see what it feels like to be touched by someone else? Are you having sex with them because you want them to buy you that iPhone? You know, like there's a whole host of interesting motivations, but that's a really important place to start. You know, like, why do you, why do people do this? I hadn't even considered that we take some of that for granted. Oh yeah, absolutely. And also just kind of like, what does that do to a young person when you like, don't meet them where their genuine curiosity or level of understanding is. Like I was in a sixth grade classroom and they were talking about using condoms for anal sex. And this one girl asked, when you have sex, do you kiss? You know, and, and this person's like demonstrating how do you put a condom on this like wooden penis model? And she just wants to know when you have sex, do you kiss? Like this is this is where they're at. They want to understand like what is intimacy? What are the different things that can be involved in intimacy? What why do people do them? And you're showing, you're like showing them to use a condom during anal penetration. Exactly. Exactly. Which feels like maybe some advanced moves based on the audience. Yeah. A little sophisticated, not, not a bad thing for them to know in terms of like their toolkit about how to keep themselves safe, but also just like not something they're probably going to hear or be able to retain information around because it's so foreign to them. Mm. It just feels like the job is so big. It's huge. It's huge. Because, you know, you're not just dealing with the content. You're wading through all of the societal, I can I swear, all the societal bullshit about, about all of our feelings and thoughts and messages that have been communicated to us about sexuality. You know, it's not like you're teaching math and it's like some people have been taught that, you know, math is hard. You know, you're talking about a topic where there's so much trauma and fear and shame and curiosity and desire and and all of those factors swirling together. It's a lot to overcome. And everybody has a different, they're coming, they're starting from a different place. Totally. Everyone's starting from a different place. And where they're starting is is totally valid and important to to validate and to acknowledge because, you know, we have to meet people where they are to be able to to grow. Okay, so I guess we're doing our part. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that's all we can do. You know, like you find the thing that you're good at or the thing that brings you joy that makes sense to you. And then you try to share it with people. You know, like I'm not going to claim to be the best sex educator out there, but I feel like there's a lot of things that I'm aware of that I try to include in my teaching and, and, and a lot of different populations that I try to speak to to bring into the conversations that are normally just kind of left out. So I feel like I'm trying to do my part and I'm also like trying to learn all the time about how I can do it better. But it's, it's daunting, you know, like that there's all this work that needs to be done and it can be really discouraging, especially in a time like this with, you know, everyone in quarantine and kids not in school it can be discouraging. But I just taught an awesome puberty ed class for a bunch of fifth graders and we spent a half an hour talking about the clitoris and that was rad. You know, like, this is what they need to know about. They need to know about their bodies. And the fact that like for most middle school and high school sex ed, the fact that the clitoris is never mentioned is just a travesty, you know? So we, we do the, the piece that we can do. These kids were on Zoom? Yeah. And this is something that you would normally do in person? 
I would normally do in person. I love teaching in person. I'm learning. I'm learning to do the the Zoom. But honestly, I really miss the in-person connection. <laughs> and there's something really beautiful about it. Yeah. And we're also doing the best we can. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the name of the game, that we work with the resources that we have to do the best that we can do. I taught, a, last month, I taught a healthy communication workshop, Tools for All Relationships. Mm-hmm. Basically teaching people how to stand up for themselves, how to say no with love, and uh, how to set healthy boundaries. And you did that all via Zoom, right? I did it all via Zoom, yeah. Yeah, it was 100, 160 people signed up wanting to learn how to improve the communication in their relationships. That's inspiring. People people want to do better. We just need the tools. And there's very little support out there, I think, for kind of realizing the type of relationships and sexuality we want. I just, I liked the way that you said, teach what you're good at, right? Continue to learn and do your part that way. Um, because it is daunting and it can be sort of uh, like paralyzing. Oh, Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I know a lot of people that have felt very paralyzed right now in this like time of quarantine, trying to figure out how you can pivot or translate what you normally do in person and still be meaningful and helpful and supportive on a different type of platform. And so, I I mean, I think that's one of the things that's exciting about this time is that you see a lot of people just trying really hard to share their skills and their knowledge and their gifts with people in a way that'll be meaningful. And I think that that's kind of like the best of what we can do. We're already doing it by talking about it, but how can we continue to help people broaden their understanding of their own sexuality? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that for a lot of people that has to do with understanding their relationship to themselves. You know, I think there's a lot of people that are finding themselves very alone right now with quarantine and social isolation and distancing. There's on one hand, it feels weird to be talking about sexuality because For a lot of people who are very alone, they're not necessarily feeling connected to their sexuality or maybe they're masturbating constantly. There's a lot of different ways that can manifest. But I think that there's something really beautiful about taking some time to first really understand your relationship to your own body and your own sexuality and allowing yourself to have curiosity there and feel able to explore and not feel ashamed and really be able to connect with what brings you pleasure. And I think that for a lot of people, this kind of like deepening of their understanding of their their own sexual selves in in individually and in isolation, just them, is a really powerful thing that can grow from this. I think that oftentimes people think of masturbation as something that, you know, like you do to tide you over until you can be sexual with someone else, or um, depending on how you were brought up, uh, there's a lot of shame around it. Maybe it's something that you know intellectually is okay, but you still feel, you know, limited in your comfort with doing it. If you really did allow yourself to kind of view your own sexuality and your sexuality with yourself as something that's like beautiful and growing and developing and can provide really valuable insight into your pleasures and your joys and and what you like and could potentially help you in the future, communicate your desires to a partner so that they could satisfy your desires even more, that there's something just really rich and dynamic about that. Um, I think for some people, it's kind of hard to reframe that because if you're desiring something else, you're desiring a partner, you're kind of noticing that deprivation instead of being able to kind of sit and understanding like the abundance of your own sexuality and that that's its own like beautiful dynamic in and of itself. I really love this. And I guess I I try to bring everything back to me. (laughs) (laughs) And for good reason. It's your podcast. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's my podcast, but it's also like, that's how I kind of make sense. Yeah. Of the world. And uh, it's my lens, you know? And so, so this resonates deeply for me because recently, I mean, maybe in the last six months or so, I've decided to like uh, just spend more time in exploration, mm-hmm. 
right? And like self-pleasuring that doesn't include uh, pornography and that includes like a lot more time and just like giving myself that, yeah. right? Just saying like, you know what? I'm just going to like put an hour on the timer and, and just sort of like be, be aware of the clock and say like, I'm just going to spend time like touching myself for an hour in a way that I haven't ever before that it's a lot slower and to just like notice what comes up. Talking about my newfound masturbatory habits seems like an appropriate place to end part one of this episode and this conversation with Julia Feldman, creator of Giving the Talk. In part two, we continue this conversation into what it means to reframe your sexuality and of sex and what that might look like for different people. Have a beautiful week and see you soon.